The Breakdown is sponsored by The Soundtrack of America, Made in Tennessee. And before we get into today's episode about Alison Krauss, you might be interested to hear about the extraordinary venue she's playing in April. The Caverns is an underground concert hall set in a natural amphitheatre created by caves underneath Monteagle Mountain. And it is one of the most magical live music experiences you can have, whether you're there to hear bluegrass or folk or soul or electronica or any of the gigs they put on. It's just one of the amazing stops along the Tennessee Music Pathways, which is a statewide programme preserving the legacy of music in Tennessee. If you want to visit the places that inspired so many of the records we talk about on this podcast, check out tnvacation.com to start planning your trip. And now, on with the show. Hello and welcome to The Breakdown, the podcast that uncovers the greatest sounds and stories in bluegrass music, one iconic record at a time. I'm Patrick McGonigal, the fiddle player with the Lonely Heartstring Band. And I'm Emma John, author, journalist, and all-round bluegrass novice. So today we are talking about the Allison Krauss and Union Station record, So Long, So Wrong that was released on March 25th, 1997. And it went on to win three Grammys for Best Country Performance by a Duo or Group with a Vocal for the track Looking in the Eyes of Love. And then it won Best Country Instrumental Performance for Little Liza Jane. And then, of course, it won Best Bluegrass Album. Of course it did, even though it's possibly one of the least bluegrassy albums that they had brought out to date. It, it is. It's... It's not super bluegrassy, but when they do the bluegrass on this, I feel like it's iconic. You know, Little Liza Jane, Blue Trail of Sorrow, No Place to Hide. Um, very, very bluegrassy and very important in their stylistic bluegrass choice. I'm also interested to hear that Looking in the Eyes of Love was one of the winners because that is actually my least favorite track on the album. <laughs> yeah, it, it it's not my favorite track either. Um it's the one that's but poppy. It, ha- it feels like it was it was written for the time. It feels like a late 90s pop ballad. That's kind of indicative of the whole theme of the record is that it's this it's their departure. It's their they're they're tipping their hat at their bluegrass uh while they look over their shoulder and then they're doing things like looking in the eyes of love and and I can let go now and all these songs deeper than crying that are very much in the pop realm they're 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 clearly moving from one thing into another did we take forever in vain into the past did we think forever was really gonna came to this record uh, because you told me to obviously that's why I listen to any bluegrass records uh, because Patrick <laughs> tells me to <laughs> and I came to this one after well in, in that way I think you have great taste in what you listen to <laughs> um and yeah I, I listened to every time you say goodbye first which was 1992 I think Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know to me it's like two completely different bands uh, you know one of them is 
what I think of as as a bluegrass band, and the other one is, yeah, like you say, just uh, t- taking bluegrass and then turning it into something I'd never heard before, something completely unique, pretty melancholy. Let's be honest. Um, but beautiful and so interesting, you know, harmonically, melodically, um, rhythmically, just completely. I'd never heard bluegrass played like I heard it on So Long, So Wrong. Yeah. And and it's I also think that this record, you can sometimes when you're listening to it, you feel like the whole band is like three inches from your head. It's it's really you're 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 so close sonically to their sound and i i kind of love that it's it's new in bluegrass you know bluegrass is so famous for being you know classically the one microphone you when you when you have the image of bluegrass you think of flattened scruggs around a large diaphragm condenser mic dancing around whereas in this record you really feel like you're kind of sitting in a chair and they're all standing in a circle around you which is a very different aesthetic um sonically and and that to me is is almost as interesting as anything else else with this record the fact that it had such success with such modern production sounds and did they do that because they wanted it to be so intimate because the whole album is completely intimate in terms of both its sound both in terms of what it does um with Alison Krauss's voice which is you know at times it feels like she's barely singing at all in in the sense Mm -hmm. of she's whispering to you you know it's it's so gentle and um so tender um like somebody who can barely even you know kind of get the words out that they're singing it's 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 proper heart it's a proper heartbreak album yes so when i think of every time you say goodbye and i think of two highways i think of alison krauss's voice as this laser beam this suit it's almost like a clarinet or something it's so pure as a sound it's like a fiddle it's like and she's a fiddle player this is the record where i hear uh, on tracks like I Can Let Go and It Doesn't Matter, that whisper that you say, and and it sounds like it's almost like her voice just on its own sounds like it's coming through a reel-to-reel tape machine or a, or a scratchy vinyl, and that becomes her signature sound. And this, I think, to me, the, the standout transition in Alison Krauss as a musician comes with that vocal style. picked out my two I think pretty much favorite tracks uh on the album I can let go now and it doesn't matter I say favorite actually maybe they're not my favorite because they're not the two that I would automatically pick to play uh if I mm-hmm. was in a, if I was in a general mood they'd probably bring me down um but they in terms of how effective they are emotionally how unbelievably like devastating they are mm-hmm. it's really interesting the way that these tracks 
sort of play with your emotions. I mean, I'm not I'm not calling yeah. Alison Krauss and Union Station manipulative, but <laughs> there is there is a way that like they they do do things like like they do on Deeper Than Crying, where they start with this minor intro. Uh, and then yeah. and then it's like it's almost like a full start and then it's like hey guys it's not as bad as you think here's some yeah. uh, upbeat here's some upbeat sounds and, and and they kind of if you don't have never heard deeper than crying the first five seconds you're like oh yeah this is dark here we go <laughs> and then there's this kind of little mandolin and all of a sudden it's just this beautiful major song One of the things that you love about this album uh, and one of the things that is kind of um, important to Bluegrasses about this album is its groove and the fact that um, it, it's it's actually, you know, in- incredibly rhythmic and and uh, and what they do in terms of um, in terms of locking in the rhythm is something that is very rare. The record before this, Every Time You Say Goodbye, was almost the same band, but with Tim Stafford playing guitar. And he's a great guitar player, and he, and he really plays that kind of modern, uh, mashy sound. But then this is the first record where you've actually got Dan Tominsky and Ron Block and Barry Bales uh, and, and Adam Steffi all feeling the time the same way. Um, and this is the first time that I can think of where they've really got that sound. And that was something that we really wanted to ask some of the band about. So Emma and I actually traveled to Nashville to meet with Ron Block and Dan Tominski earlier this year. We visited Ron at his house, and he's the first voice that you're going to hear. And then we caught up with Dan separately over some delicious coffee. I loved Allison's band. You know, even when I saw I I saw them with it was and it was Jeff White and Allison Brown and Allison and and uh john and vic it was vic kraus i i saw that yeah. band i thought man that's a great band and then when uh uh adam steffi and tim stafford joined uh and um barry bales it was fantastic you know it was another move i thought that is just that those three those three guys playing together uh tim stafford barry bales and adam steffi it, it was just a particular unique sound nobody else had and then allison called me and asked if i wanted to join and once that happened the first weekend when i joined it was we played the tv opry i'd never been on tv but it was the tv opry uh a taping of hee-haw and it was sink or swim but those guys made it so fun you know i mean i I hadn't played you know i didn't play three chords before i i met allison in the band so i looked at I look back now and I guess it's not so incredibly intricate, but you know, at the time I remember thinking, you know, I don't even know what you call that chord. I was looking at Ron's hands, you know, asking him to play near the nut so that I could, you know, he's like, don't play that chord up there. I don't know what that is. Play it down here so I can at least follow along. Well, early on, there's a lot of laughing. And I mean, it's always been a group of really funny people, like hilarious people. So there's always been that, but I, you know, speaking only for myself, like, you know, in the in the early years, I think um, I just had some 
aspects where I was trying to prove myself a little too much and um, trying to play too perfectly and mad when I wasn't and you know so I, I mean I think I think there were some things in those early years where I could have done things better. I think we were all OCD about our playing and and we found ourselves in a situation to where we had the opportunity to do it how we wanted. I mean, most bands at that stage of their life, you know, there's a clock ticking and you have so much time and pretty much, you know, it's, there's there comes a point where you're just wasting money and why would you keep going? Um, we really never considered whether we were, I mean, to, to us it was never a waste of money to try to beat whatever we'd done or what we were working on. So we were just, I guess, at the right age and all of a like-mindedness where we wanted it to be the best it could be. And if that meant, you know, starting over, we started over. I remember singing songs all day and not keeping a word and singing them all the next day and not keep a word, you know, and then playing a solo all day and not getting the solo and working on it the next day, playing that solo all day, like and just wearing it out. We were all about making it killer, you know, like everybody was. And, and but it was interesting. It's always been interesting how the different personalities work because, um, you know, I was always over focused, uh, and and then and then and then you got and Dan was about like let's make it feel good, and so it was like there was this push and pull within the band that was really healthy. It was really healthy because it kept me. Dan has always kept me from being as serious as I could have been. You know, Dan's often he's been the balance to me, going, hey, you know, let's let's just have fun, let's. The track feels good. Leave it. Don't play that solo again. You know, like he's he's often been that guy. Ron and I had a very like we we were able to lock in. It was it was I had you know so much fun doing stuff like that with Ron because we both care. Like it's boy like I really cared and I don't think I cared as much as he did. I mean, to me, really, what makes a lot of what makes bluegrass banjo sound killer is when there's a killer guitar player because there there's just something the guitar does when the guitarist knows how to play behind a banjo and Dan knows I mean Dan is so good playing behind a banjo it's so much fun to play with him that yeah. that type of rhythm it's the reason I mean that's the reason I I play it's that's what initially got me off on this stuff I mean I can tell you the song I mean honestly the song I was 12 years old my brother had come home from the navy on leave and he was playing uh the uh, 0044 record he was playing New South and they were playing I'm Walking. Yes, indeed, and I'm talking about you and me. I'm hoping that you come back to me. I'm lonely as I can be, and I'm wanting your company, and I'm hoping that you return to me. What you gonna do when the world runs dry? You're gonna sit right down and cry, and I'll be right here by your side. And for you, pretty baby, I'd even die. I'm walking. Yes, indeed, and I'm talking about you and me. It was years and years and years and years and years later before I realized that it was the guitar playing with the banjo that got me off. I thought it was the banjo. It was never the banjo. It was the relationship between guitar and banjo that did my thing because every time I heard Crow without Rice, he's great, he's Crow, but it wasn't. there was always something like it wasn't there. Even if you listen to Earl Scruggs, you cannot take for granted that Lester Flat didn't have that thumb pick like halfway up your butt when he yeah. was like that he had a serious like he had a serious thing.
So I'm fascinated by uh, the songwriting on this record, not least because Alison uh, does not write her own songs. And mm-hmm. but Alison has this incredibly uh, powerful, influential role in choosing the songs for her band uh, or even commissioning them from other songwriters. And so that's what I find fascinating about this record is that it feels the entire record feels so thematic um it 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 works together so well and it feels all like it's a single voice it feels like alison's voice often um uh, and yet she didn't write a word of of, <laughs> of these lyrics yeah uh, but she obviously just knows how to she knows what she wants and she knows how to get what she wants out of other songwriters as impressive as her ability to just kind of curate this whole record is also that the sounds are very different one to the next and yet as you say there's this real sense of cohesion and and like it really is an expression of Alison Krauss it feels almost like a concept album sometimes you know so Mm -hmm. many of the uh themes of all these songs are about losing love I mean you know Mm -hmm. you could argue in one way it's a breakup album you know not every song is about lost love but a lot of them are There's a theme for sure. And we decided that it would be interesting to talk to one of the songwriters who contributed to the album. So Emma called Bob Lucas, who wrote the songs The Road is a Lover and No Place to Hide. Bob's been writing songs and playing for the Mad River Theater Works Company since the mid-1980s, and he chatted to Emma on the phone from his home in Ohio. Can you just briefly explain how your two songs No Place to Hide and The Road is a Lover came to be on the album So Long So Wrong? Well, that's a good story right there. The Road is a Lover is a song uh, that I had just been working on because, uh, you know, I liked it very much. And then I was also working on this theater project about the Underground Railroad, which I had uh, just written uh, No Place to Hide for. And I was just, I was, you know, living up the street from a good friend of mine. His name is Jeff White. I don't know if you know who that is. but Jeff White, who was he, once with Alison Krauss and Union Station just before this album exactly. was made. Exactly. And he came to me and he's, you know, we were playing together at the time. And uh, he said, Bob, I got this audition and they really want me to bring some original material, but I don't have any. Do you have any songs I could bring? And so I taught him those two songs. And he brought them to the band. songs were brought to Allison and the band then and just after he left the band they started working on So Long So Wrong and uh, one day the phone rang and it was Jeff I said hey partner what's up 
He said, well, I'm busy working on a solo record. I said, dude, I wish I could make a solo record. I just don't have the funds. He said, well, it won't be long, and you'll have plenty of funds. And I said, what are you talking about? She said, he said, well, Allison has recorded both of the songs that I brought to, brought to the band of yours. She loves them, and uh, they're going to be on this new record. And uh, life has been sweet ever since. <laughs> And um, tell me, it feels like there's a bigger story behind No Place to Hide. That, that it, It's one well, of it's, those songs that you hear the lyrics and you think, what is really going on in this song? Tell us about that song. Um, the song was written to be the opening moments of a play about the Underground Railroad. And it allowed both of the main characters of the play, and, and still does, uh, a way of telling their story in brief. It's really about a mudslide moment in American history. When it's uh, the date is 1856, and so it's uh, there's really no one was able to get out of the way of the mudslide. It was uh, the beginning of the Civil War, slave times, and uh, the 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 Fugitive Slave Act was causing all kinds of trouble in the states and. The, and, and the federal government couldn't keep up with all the problems that were, you know, I mean, it was just a big old mess. I never thought to worry if the river rose too high That all the seeds we planted would get washed out with the tide But now I am a man And I need a place to hide But there's nowhere to run And there's no that production does that play uh, still get performed is that one of the ones uh, that you still perform with your yes, theater company that is correct yeah it, it in fact last year we had the 30th anniversary of the play freedom bound and we traveled uh we were we had to play up for 10 months pardon me oh wait wait 10 weeks <laughs> uh and uh, we played um oh i don't know probably for Somewhere around 500,000 people. But now I'm a man. I won't be hanging around too long. I think another notable thing on this record is that there are six songs not sung by Allison, which is, you know, that's... There's only 14 songs on the record, and and one of them is instrumental. So when you think about it, the fact that seven out of 14 songs is not Alison Krauss singing lead is is really interesting. It's it's clear that at this moment in the mid 90s on their their really their biggest breakout records. Every time you say goodbye was was big and it won a Grammy, but this this one really launched them. That Alison's only singing lead on half, so she really is making this. They're all making this a band effort. This is Union Station as much as it's Alison Krauss. Yeah, it's like um, a cooperative, isn't it? It's um, it's it something really where is. everybody brings uh, their skills. And you don't 
hear a lot of people telling stories about what it's like to be in a band with Alison Krauss, mainly because she's a very private person and the people she's close to are really careful about how much they'll share about her. But that didn't stop us asking what it was like to work with Alison Krauss. It's a band, but I always, I've always looked to Allison as the leader. You know, it's like I've always thought she has the final say because somebody has to. Um, I think where the, where the music is concerned, she's very. Uh, let me think. How would I say that? Very centered on what what's what sounds best, what feels the best, what feels the best for her to sing, what what you know what's going to sound the best i mean for her it's about the music but she doesn't have to keep you in line on occasions oh i mean she'll she'll definitely say did you change something can you uh, play it that other way you know like she'll do that but but she's i mean i've had so much freedom and and been treated um so well and all of us have through the years that uh i have zero to complain about and she uh, working with her is great. I mean, she's I mean she's she's as pure and natural a talent as I ever saw. I mean, uh, she's like um, kind of like uh, just opening up the bottle and letting it pour out. So, I mean, she's an emotional person. Like she's got she's got deep feelings and deep thoughts. Mm-hmm. And I do know she's she. Be, I think she's in touch with how the songs affect her. And I think when you're honest like that and you pick things that honestly affect you and you're not simply thinking about marketing the songs or getting a certain audience to like you or any of that stuff you're simply going this is a beautiful song and it moves me and I'm going to do this I think when you do that you end up making music that's more real Does So Long So Wrong feel like an emotional record to you? I thought we never stopped until it did so that's that's where I think we had the advantage is because if Again, if it didn't, if it didn't make us feel like if it, I mean, if it didn't kick our ass, we didn't figure it was going to kick anybody else's. And did you all still manage to stay friends at the end of this record? No, God, we hated each other. No, I'm totally kidding. <laughs> I, was, uh, no, I, just, I just wanted to see the expression. No, 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 no. That was. See, I, I think for us through all those years, that was what we had that kind of, that, that if anything really did trump anyone was that we had a really good relationship. We, we loved everybody in the band. Like everybody loved everybody else. Like we all knew where we came from, who we were. No one was trying to be better than anybody else. No one was trying, I mean, yeah, that we had a very good relationship through all that. And again, at the end of the day, you know, we got to, we got to do it until we liked it. And that was very few people got to do that, you know. of the songs in this album just a little bit sappy i i don't i don't want to you know ruin anybody else's enjoyment of them but we've mentioned looking in the eyes of love i also find happiness which i actually still very much enjoy as a song uh apparently it was written by michael mcdonald uh, of the doobie brothers uh with mm. allison's 
own bassist brother Victor. That's who wrote yeah. Happiness. Um, but I, I do find the R's and the harmonies just a, they're just heading towards sappy for me. It is sappy, <laughs> but but it's so masterfully executed that they can kind of get away with it because while it's sappy on one level, it is just virtuosic on so many other levels that you can kind of, okay, I'll listen to those lyrics if I can hear that guitar rhythm just perfectly sitting there. Also need to say, speaking of the virtuosity of it, I think Allison's fiddle playing is very standout on this record. Um, just kind of like her 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 vocals are so uh, developed here and so dynamic and full have so much range. So does her fiddle playing. I mean, Little Liza Jane, the break she takes on Little Liza Jane is unlike any other bluegrass solo. It's it's got space. It's got very unusual short clipped phrasing but that really works dynamically even in one note she'll go from quiet to loud and back to quiet nugget about little Liza Jane yes I had a look at where that fiddle tune uh, came from and it's an old fiddle tune and it, you know it was it was played in East Tennessee um, lots of you know different regions have their different versions but you can trace it all the way back um, to uh, where it was sung by slaves in Louisiana and Georgia as a work song um, and uh, at their evening dances. And then you can trace it even further back. The melody of the chorus is uh, the same as a melody uh, in a West African welcome song uh, called Fanga Alafia. I, I hope that's how you pronounce it. Um, so Little Liza Jane, you can, you can find that melody all the way back to West Africa. That's amazing. Isn't it? And, and shredded on the mandolin by Adam <laughs> Steffi. Yeah. the place uh, that this album holds in terms of mash because mash is again one of these it's one of these bluegrass terms which i only came to about 18 months ago i still kind of struggle to identify it from what i understand it's uh bluegrass is playing everything with quite a heavy downbeat and almost always singing in b i mean mash is is basically uh, a rhythmical approach to bluegrass and also a certain very bluesy but very clean uh, soloing style, uh, you know, where you you rarely, you can interchange the minor third and the major third on any chord and it's going to sound fine. It's very minory, bluesy, clean, tight, a little slower, and it's ubiquitous uh, 
in certain scenes of bluegrass, specifically around the kind of southeast of the United States. Is Blue Trail of Sorrow a mash uh, version on this I album? I would say no. Blue Trail of Sorrow is the mash version. <laughs> I found it interesting when Ron and uh, Dan talked to us about Blue Trail of Sorrow uh, that even they thought it was a pretty slow version. I can only imagine how they came upon that tempo. It must have been almost a joke, or maybe they accidentally hit halftime on the uh, on the playback <laughs> machine and thought, hey, this sounds really good. Like, Allison was very adamant. I remember Blue Trail of Sorrow about that tempo being that slow. You guys... I, I, I think it's still too fast. <laughs> you guys, I, I think I think we should do it slower. I, I was like, oh no. <laughs> challenge most bands to, to to even just play it at that tempo all the way through walk all over town sweet tears of sadness falling down keep looking baby i won't be around blue trail of song on the ground One of the, the elements of this record that really makes it popular than maybe any other bluegrass record I can think of uh, right off the top is that the groove is kind of unique um, for the for the non-bluegrass stuff. The bluegrass stuff is, is like a, a modern bluegrass mash sound, but the non-bluegrass stuff, the most of the stuff that Allison's singing that's a little slower, there's this combination of Barry Bales' sense of timing on the bass and also his sustain he kind of sustains almost like an electric bass player like like a kind of electric country bass player combined with adam steffi's real kind of train groove slightly ahead of the beat chop it gives it this you can almost hear a drum kit and exactly what a drum kit would be doing but it seems that i'm I, I think it's notable to mention the 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 producer of this record, um, Gary Pachosa, who is one of the top kind of country acoustic uh, Nashville sound uh, producers of the '90s and right up to today. Um, and he produced this, and this was the first record that he had produced of Alison Krauss. And uh, he really, you can hear kind of his really pop sensibility 
pop country even, but really loving acoustic sounds approach to this record. Um, and and we, we were able to sit down with him and chat about what he remembers of this session. You know, I mean, when Allison hired me, it was because she we'd brought her in to sing harmony on a couple of Dolly tracks, you know, over the course of a year or two. And they were talking about making, you know, making a change to another engineer just to kind of take a step forward or go in a different direction than what they had been doing. And, she, you know, she, she loved what she heard, you know, when she was working with me um, on those other records. So in, in Blue, you know, and I hadn't done any bluegrass records before working with Allison. So the band really taught me a lot. You know, they took me to school regularly. Barry Bales would bring in cassettes at the time, bring in a cassette every couple of days of the mandatory listening that I needed to do. You know, a lot of Johnson Mountain Boys and, you know, Tony Rice and <clears throat> just all the records that were so important to them. So I think we all pushed each other. We, we spent a long time and really, I mean, exhausted every every recording technique we could. I mean, I remember Pachosa, Gary Pachosa, our engineer. I mean, I'd never spent so much time placing a microphone in front of a guitar. I'm like, dude, it's one inch different. He goes, that's right. Let's get that inch back. Like it was, you know, they just, their, their work ethic was, was incredible. You know, it's not like now where they, everyone knows you can, <clears throat> you can move it all around and tune it or do, do whatever you want to do to it after the fact, manipulate it. Back then, we didn't have that, so you just had to play it, you know, again and again until all the elements everyone was looking for were there. Yeah. Took a lot of time off my life. <laughs> <laughs> and that record, oh my gosh, I mean, we were so particular persnickety about that record. I remember we had finished a song and strummed it out, and right at the end, my guitar, there's a little buzz in it somewhere, so we were... I don't know how much time we spent, but we had a stethoscope out, you know, listening to every part of the guitar, trying to find it. Finally, deemed that there was. Some, I remember I went to uh, a luthier here in Nashville, someone that was recommended to me, and he took my bridge off that night. We went like midnight. He started working on the guitar so I could fix this part the next day. Takes the bridge out like he heats it up with a torch, and this is my old herringbone. I mean, it's, you know, it's worth quite a, quite a bit of money, and he gets a like a this little scraper and he puts it under there and he starts and I hear it going and it's breaking and cracking and I'm almost crying I'm going please don't do that and he goes no it's, it's fine it's fine ultimately you know gets it apart and does a bunch of you know repair cleans it and gets it seated back to where everything's good and it's, it's it was the most worrisome night you know it was awful and you know and he fixed it got everything great went back in the studio you know for that one last you know Bring and it got to the end. It went zzz, it did the same thing again. He said, "Did you hear that buzz?" I was like, "Yeah, ain't it great?" So since we are coming to the end of talking about this album, it feels like we should come to the end of the album. Uh, and I think, I suspect you and I might have quite different uh, reactions to the last track. Because to me, I'm, All right, I'm, I'm putting ready. It, Lay it on. Are you me. ready? I love, I love, love, love this track. I find it moving. I find it beautiful. I actually genuinely find it one of the most beautiful tracks on the album. And I think you're about to uh, just ruin it for me. (laughs) Can I ask you 
why do you think I don't like it? Because I, I, I have to ask. Well, I mean, you and I have different. Uh, you and I have different experiences of faith for a start. Like you know, yep. and and our positions on it. It does have this this funny setup with the strings that does almost say to you, you know, get ready for something that we are going to, you know, try and make feel quite spiritual. Well, you're right. I don't love it. I think it's fine. It's as a as a song, it's fine. I mean, I love uh, bluegrass gospel. I, I think bluegrass gospel music is some of my favorite music in the world. This doesn't feel like bluegrass gospel to me. This feels like turn your dial to the gospel radio station kind of gospel. moving i especially find it moving because ron uh block who wrote it and sings it um did have a kind of big crisis of faith i think around the time that um he was recording these albums and and from uh hanging out and chatting with him at his house you do get the the idea that this was a very very important time in his life when he talks about it there's a i'm not sure what the right word would be it's almost like a a sense of urgency to the way he talks about this moment, this album, this time. And you do, I do genuinely trust that he is writing that song uh, from a very, very real place of, of searching and finding uh, a, a new sense of meaning. So I'll, I will definitely hand, hand it to him and hand it to the song in that regard. What's not to love, I say with zero sarcasm, about <laughs> ending the song and then quietly bringing in a little bit of the groove for 15 or 20 seconds and then fading it back out again. Is that your favorite part? Uh, I wouldn't say favorite. <laughs> So just on, in closing, from, from my question to you is, you have to give the record a rating out of five stars. Ooh. How many stars does it get? Can I give it four and three quarters? Oh, wow. Yes. I, I love it. I mean, I love it. And I've, I've, gr my love for it has grown the more that I've listened to it. Mm -hmm. um, however, I have to take a quarter star off for looking in the eyes of love. I'm sorry, Costas, mm. who wrote that. Um, I know that you wrote it for, for Patty Loveless and um, I'm sure her, her version is um, completely wonderful, but I don't know what it's doing on this album.
Well, I'm going to give it four and one quarter star. And I would have given it four stars, except that just to counter you, I'm giving it a, a quarter of a star for Alison Krauss's vocal inflection on the song Looking in the Eyes of Love. Right after she says the words run away, she does this vocal thing that is just magnificent. So there, that's <laughs> that's my rebuttal. Thank you so much for joining us on this episode of The Breakdown. A huge thanks to uh, Dan Tominski and Ron Block and Gary Pachoza, uh, Bob Lucas, Mark Simos uh, for sitting down and chatting with us about about this record and, and this era of their lives and of music. That's the end of this episode, and we're very grateful to Visit Tennessee for their sponsorship of this entire series of The Breakdown. We wanted to let you know about a, a couple of other things Patrick and I have been up to. Shameless plug alert. Patrick has an album out with his band, uh, the Lonely Heartstring Band, called Smoke and Ashes. And I uh, can attest that it's actually very good. I have now listened to it about a dozen times. And we're going to we're gonna make a whole season of The Breakdown just about my record. Yeah. Look forward to that, folks. <laughs> and Emma has a book out called Wayfaring Stranger. And it's going to be published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson in the UK, but you will be able to get it on Amazon. And you can get it as an ebook, or you can get it in hardcover, like mine, which is much nicer because it has lovely illustrations and a map and a beautiful cover. Anyway, there we go. Shameless plugging happening right here. Uh, go listen to some more Bluegrass, and we will see you next time. <laughs>